Well, I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. What does your ideal church look like? What does your ideal church look like? Is it the sort of place where you get the best Bible teaching you can ever imagine? World-class Bible teaching. Or is it a place where you have the most exciting children's and youth programs possible? Or maybe it's something more than that. Maybe it's better refreshments after the service. Imagine instead of the usual tea and coffee options, you've got a whole range of mochas and cappuccinos and lattes, maybe even a flat white. Wouldn't that be good? Or imagine if I could guarantee you, every single one of you, that two minutes before you arrive to the service, when you drive in your car, that you're guaranteed to get a parking space. Wouldn't that be good, particularly in Strandtown, maybe? Now, as good as some of that stuff might be, my guess is that that's not really what we look for when we think about the ideal church. I was talking to someone recently who said that he became a Christian largely because he was spending time with other Christians and he saw that there was something very different about the way that these people lived their lives. As he said, they had something that I didn't have. He could see the difference that Jesus made to each of these people's lives and he thought that was really attractive. Uh, many people actually have similar experiences where they're, they're maybe not Christians, but they hang out with other Christians and they realize that there is something deeper going on for the Christian. And this is good. We're meant to be people who are filled with joy and who have peace with God and a real reason for the hope that is within us. Wouldn't it be great to be a, a community of people, a church family, as Andy was saying, who are filled with people like that? A place where skeptics can come and say, you know, I I don't believe a word of what you say, but there's something different about you people. There's something attractive here. A community where those who are hurting can feel welcomed. A community where those who are weary can find rest for their souls. A place where we build one another up with kind and supportive and encouraging words. Where there's real trust with one another because we know that if we share things with each other that we're going to be loved and accepted. And a place filled with the Holy Spirit, with God's presence, where the Spirit is at work changing our hearts and our lifestyles. That might be closer to our ideal vision of church, but how do we get there? How do we actually get there? Well, this morning in this passage, what Paul is saying is that as the church, we are to be united as a body of people by God's love. The key phrase in the whole of this passage, we'll come to a little bit later on, but Paul says, you're to walk in the way of love. That's who we are as God's people. But Paul doesn't just say, look, just get on with loving each other all the best. No, he actually gives us a bit of a blueprint as to how to behave towards one another lovingly as a church family. Last week we were looking at how uh, Paul's, uh, his instructions uh, of how we are to put off the old self, put on the new self. And so this week we're, we're going, coming down to some of the nitty gritty details. How do we actually do that? How do we put off the old self and put on the new self? Especially when it comes to our relationships with one another in the church community. Now if you're here today and you're not actually yet a Christian, can I just encourage you that some of this won't uh, directly apply to you right now. But my hope is that whilst Paul paints this picture of the church community and church life, uh, a community that's built upon love for one another, that you'll see 
that actually this is a warm and inviting and welcoming church community. That's my hope. So first we'll look at some of the habits of this new self. Paul says you've got the new self and so you have a new lifestyle. Uh, Secondly, we'll see that the church is a spiritual battlefield. It's a spiritual battlefield. And then thirdly, we'll think about why should we do any of this stuff, this new lifestyle that Paul is recommending. What is the motivation behind our loving one another? And ultimately, we'll see that it's because God loves us and because Jesus gave his life for us that we are then to love others. So first, the new self and the new lifestyle. What we see in almost all of the instructions that Paul gives to us is the same pattern. Paul says, don't do this, do this. Don't do this, do this. In other words, put off the old and put on the new. So, so he begins here by emphasizing the power of words. The power of words. He says in verse 25, Therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. And the instructions that Paul gives here, they're in the context of the church community, the body of the church. We know this because it says we are members of this one body of the church. And the question is, well, why is speaking falsehood or speaking lies to one another? Why is that so harmful? Well, the reason why it's so damaging is because it breaks down relationships to the point where we can't even trust each other anymore. I'm sure we all had one or two friends growing up who we knew that we just couldn't really trust. The sort of friends who would tell really tall tales. And they might have been very uh, interesting, entertaining and funny. But eventually, with some of these friends, you just have to take everything they say with a massive pinch of salt. You can't trust them because they're not speaking truthfully to each other. Or you might think of that old story of the boy who cried wolf. He just told tall tale after tall tale after tall tale. And eventually, uh, the people in his village couldn't trust him anymore. And so when real danger came his way, he was left alone. He couldn't be trusted. We all know that relationships are built upon a bedrock of trust. And we know how hurtful it is whenever somebody who we trust takes that that relationship and that trust and they, they break it. They break it by telling us lies. It puts up a barrier between us and that person. And so what Paul is saying here is that you need to put off that old way of speaking that falsehood and speak truth to one another. Because otherwise, we can't live and function as a church. Paul here reminds us that we're not isolated individuals, but actually we're members of one body. In other words, whenever you come into the church this morning, you might look around and and think that you're an individual, maybe part of a family, and that's true. But actually, as you look to your left and look to your right, these people are all members of your body, of one body. And so Paul says, why lie to one another? Because the harm that you do to your brother or sister, it hurts the whole body, and ultimately, it's going to hurt you as well. Paul then moves on to say later in this passage, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. The Greek words translated here as unwholesome literally means rotten or foul. 
It means rotten or foul. And it was used to refer to rotten fruit and veg and rotten fish. And so what Paul is saying here is that that kind of rotten, uh, unwholesome language, you need to develop a bit of a gag reflex to it. It's that kind of revolting talk that you shouldn't be doing. Now, you might have heard this verse before uh, applied to, in particular, to swearing. And of course, swearing is part of that. That's part of the unwholesome talk that we're to put off. But that is by no means the limit of what Paul is talking about. Because actually in the Bible, there are many forms of speech that can be unwholesome. And so it would include things like gossip and slander, filthy language, boasting and complaining and so on. And what's common to all of these forms of speech is that they tear down other people. They don't build people up. And so the implication from Paul here is this, use your words really carefully. Because we all know that our words carry a massive amount of power, don't they? They have the power to destroy, but also the power to build up. The writer of Proverbs tells us this, the tongue has the power of life and death. Life and death. And we know that old nursery school rhyme, don't we? That just is a lot of nonsense. Sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt me. It's just not true at all. We know that we've been hurt many times by other people's words, and we can hurt other people as well. And so the question for us this morning is this. Are we using our words day by day to build other people up or to destroy them and tear them down? Because the sense from Paul here is that there are really no neutral words. Either your words are building people up or they're tearing people down. Are our words filled with hatred or with love? With bitterness or with blessing? And and in order to do this, actually, we're going to need to do a bit of work here. Because Paul says in verse 29, to speak only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. That actually takes a bit of effort, doesn't it? Because he says it's according to their needs. That requires us to be sensitive to the needs of other people, to put other people's needs actually before our own. And for example, it could include uh, speaking to somebody who's been really discouraged, who's had a very tough week, uh, and just coming along at the right time and offering up some kind and supportive and encouraging words. But that takes a level of relationship of knowing that person. It takes time and it takes effort. Or it could be noticing someone who's done a really good job at leading a small group study or leading a time of worship, whatever it might be, and just offering them some constructive, encouraging words. I know that for me, uh, I probably wouldn't be here doing this right now if it wasn't for people over the years offering me some encouraging words. And I'll let you be the judge of whether that's a good thing or not. (laughs) But I know that that, without that encouragement... Uh, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. Our words have the power to tear down or to build up. What kind of church family would we rather be in? What kind of people would we rather be surrounded by? The kind of people who build us up and encourage us or people who tear us down? The answer is really obvious, isn't it? It is really obvious. But the thing is that we must begin with ourselves. It's no good saying, well, look, I'm going to wait until 10 other people encourage me before I'm going to encourage other people. No, we need to start with ourselves. So our words are very important. Paul then says that there is the danger of anger. The danger of anger. He says in verse 26, 
In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And we notice here that Paul doesn't say, do not become angry, for it is a sin. But no, he says, in your anger, do not sin. Because there is a righteous kind of anger, isn't there? A righteous kind of anger. One of, an example of this uh, is when Jesus becomes angry in John chapter 2. And so he goes into the temple and he finds people there who are effectively treating the temple as a, as a marketplace, a place to make money. And so he, he makes a whip out of cords and he drives out the money changers there. That was a moment where Jesus was angry, but it was righteous anger. But if you're anything like me, you'll know that quite often, whenever you become angry, uh, you can be persuaded that your anger is actually of the righteous kind. We might say, well, somebody else has wronged me. They've sinned against me. And so I am justifiably angry at them. What they've done is a sin, and so I'm angry at them. Well, sometimes, sometimes that is justified. But how do we know if our anger is righteous or not? Well, there are two questions we can ask ourselves, which I think are quite helpful. First, is our anger caused by something that is genuinely a violation of God's law? Is it actually a sin? Is it something that's against God's law or against his will? In other words, is our focus on God and his will and his glory, or is our focus on me and my will? And the second question then is, when you become angry, do you give the control over to God, or do you lose control? Do you lose control? When we become angry, do we come before God and say, God, there's a situation here that I'm really annoyed about, I'm angry about it, but Lord, I know that you're the judge, and I want to give over that situation to you. Or do we let it fester? And let that anger linger on. And actually it just goes completely unresolved. And then we begin to plot in our hearts our revenge against that person. Are we losing control or are we giving up control to God? And when we ask these two questions, usually we find, I find, that our anger is not as righteous as we first thought. Even if we're reacting to someone who has genuinely sinned against us, we can often respond sinfully as well. And so Paul is saying here, in your anger, do not sin. It's a direct quote from Psalm chapter four. And this Psalm goes on to say, search your hearts and be silent. That's a really helpful response, isn't it? Whenever you become angry, usually a good response is just to be silent, to offer up that situation to God, to examine our own motivations and our own hearts And pray that God will be the judge. How are we doing with this this morning? Is there somebody perhaps right now in this room who you still are feeling angry towards? Maybe there's a situation that's unresolved, some hurt or some pain that you need to work through. Can I plead with you? Please do resolve that issue, whatever it might be. Because by allowing that anger to fester and to linger on, It will only tear down uh, this church. Paul then says, we must not steal, verse 28, but have something to share with those in need. He says, anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. 
And in Paul's day, of course, there was no such thing as the welfare state. And so there were a lot of people who found themselves in a situation where the only way that they could uh, support themselves was by stealing. In fact, according to some commentators, this area uh, where Ephesus was in Asia Minor, uh, it, was, uh, it was a place where there were lots of people from all levels of society who were stealing, even Christians, after they uh, got converted. So what Paul is saying here is, don't do this any longer. Do not steal. Now, you might look at this verse this morning and say, well, look, I've never stolen anything in my life, and so this doesn't really apply to me, and we can just move on to the next bit. But I want to encourage you to look at this verse closely because Paul goes on to say they must steal no longer but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. And the word that Paul uses here for work, it carries with it this sense of working to the point of exhaustion or weariness. It's a kind of hard graft, hard graft. It's not actually just about providing food and shelter and clothing for us and our family, as as important as that is. But no, Paul says that's not what work is all about. The ultimate purpose of our work is that people may have something to share with others who have genuine needs. And with this, what Paul is doing is he's taking us back to that earliest church community in Acts 4 that we read about. The community where people gathered together and they had everything in common. All of their, their goods and their possessions. It wasn't that they, they uh, decided to, to not own things anymore. But anything that they had was available to share. And this is a really challenging uh, word to our notion of what work is really for. Work isn't just there to fulfill me and my needs and my desires. But actually, if God has blessed us with the opportunity to work then we're to use that to share with those who are in need. So we're not to use unwholesome talk. We're not to speak falsehood to each other. And we're not to steal from each other. What an attractive community that is. Can you imagine a place where you come in on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday evening, wherever it happens to be, when you're gathering as church, and you know it's going to be a place where you're built up and encouraged, where people are speaking the truth in love to one another, where there's no gossip or backbiting or slander, where if you have a need, you can come and you know that people will be sharing with you because they love you. What an attractive community. But there is a threat to this community, to this church. Secondly then, the church is a spiritual battlefield. Now when you look around here this morning, you might look to the people on your left and on your right and think, well, they look pretty normal, um, I hope. And, and you might think, well, well it's, there's nothing really out of the ordinary here. But actually, the fact is, this is a spiritual battlefield. The words that we use, the way that we treat one another, carry massive consequences spiritually. We see this in verse 27. Paul says, when he's talking about anger, do not give the devil a foothold. Now, he uses this phrase when he's describing anger, but actually, it can describe All of these old habits that he's been talking about, the lies, the stealing, uh, the unwholesome talk, and so on. Now, why are we warned by Paul not to do these things? Well, it's because we don't want to allow the devil to gain a foothold in our church. Now, I realize that in our culture today, we're often very skeptical of the reality of the supernatural. 
Um, the devil can be portrayed as a figure of fun, a sort of cartoonish figure who has horns and a pitchfork, and maybe we don't take him seriously at all. That's one danger. Or another danger is that we actually just don't think about the devil at all, day to day, week to week. We don't recognize the reality of the spiritual warfare that we're in. Even as Christians, we can forget and neglect his existence. The writer C.S. Lewis uh, says this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. I think actually in our culture today, the biggest danger is just the other extreme of not believing in the devil at all. Not living our lives like he's actually real and neglecting his existence. But the Bible tells us that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And what Paul is doing here by saying, do not give the devil a foothold, he's flagging up the reality of the spiritual battle that we're all in. The anger that we have, the lies that we tell to one another, the unwholesome talk that comes from our lips that tears people down, none of this is just natural. But actually, it has supernatural uh, consequences. Our behavior always has a spiritual dimension to it. The church is also a spiritual battlefield, and we read in verse 30, because our our words and our actions have an impact, you might say, uh, on the Holy Spirit. There's a potential that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Paul says this curious phrase in verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now, what does he mean? Well, the fact that the Holy Spirit grieves over our sin tells us very clearly that the Spirit is a person. He is a person, and we know this from elsewhere in Scripture. For example, the Spirit speaks to us, he intercedes for believers, and he dwells in the lives of Christians. And we read about that in Romans chapter 8. So we find here the Spirit is not an impersonal force, but he is a person. And what we find is that whenever we sin in these ways, the uncontrolled anger... Uh, the unwholesome words, the lies, and so on. We're not just harming our brothers and sisters, although that is very true, but actually we're grieving the Holy Spirit himself as well. But in the midst of this challenge, there is a word of encouragement. There's a word of encouragement because no matter what you do, you cannot lose the Holy Spirit through your sin. Let's read verse 30 again. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So what this tells us is that no matter how much we sin, there's actually no risk. If we have been made new in Christ, there is no risk that we will lose the Holy Spirit. In the ancient world, whenever a king was sending a letter, uh, he would get the document and a servant would pour hot wax onto it. And he would get his ring and, and imprint it with his unique seal. And that was a way of of whoever was receiving the letter, they would know that this letter was authentic, that it really was from the king because it had his seal upon it. So what Paul is saying here is that you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. You're no longer your own. You don't just belong to yourself, but actually you belong to Jesus, the king. And that seal cannot and will not be broken. 
So we cannot lose the Holy Spirit. And this is an amazing source of comfort, isn't it? That no matter what we do, we know that we always have him with us. But we still can grieve the Spirit. We still can grieve the Spirit. And so we always need to be on our guard to, to guard against these two very real possibilities. Number one, that we allow the devil to have a foothold in our church. And then secondly, that we grieve the Holy Spirit. Thirdly then, we need to be imitators of God. We need to follow God's example. You might say at this point, well look, Paul, that's all very well. That all sounds very nice. But you don't know what my church is like. You've never met some of the people in my church. And Paul seems to be mindful of this. Because he gives us concrete reasons as to why we need to love one another and put on the new self. Let's look at these three reasons. Firstly, we're to follow God's example and imitate God as dearly loved children. We read that in verse 1 of chapter 5. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. Here is a massive motivation to put on the new self because we've already been adopted and accepted as God's children. Uh, Child development experts will tell us that whenever children are born from, from a very early age, they become little imitators. The vast majority of what they learn in terms of their behavior and everything else comes from other people around them, and especially their parents. So, for example, whenever a one-year-old forms his very first or her very first words, mama or dada, they're really just imitating things that they find and heard around them. We all begin life as little imitators. And what Paul is saying here is that you and I are dearly loved children of God. We need to imitate and follow the example of our loving Heavenly Father. Because we're described here as God's children. We don't have to earn or do anything at all to, to, to try and get that status. But in fact, it's a gift of God's grace. He has given us this new relationship with him. We're part of his family, not because of anything that we have done but only because of God's grace and his mercy. We are to imitate our father as dearly loved children. Second then, we are to forgive each other because in Christ God has forgiven us. We read that in verse 32 of chapter 4. If you've been a part of any church for any period of time, you will know uh, the necessity of this verse. You'll know that you need to forgive people. Because there will always be people who rub you up the wrong way or maybe even do worse things, do very hurtful things to you. And that isn't the way that it's meant to be, but that is the reality of living in a broken and a fallen world. We will always have times whenever people do things that hurt us, but we are to forgive. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells a story about a servant who owes this huge, huge debt to his master, the king. And the servant comes in to the king, uh, and he, he can't pay the debt, but the king, in his mercy, wipes that debt clean. He removes the penalty of that debt, and he lets him go. And this very same servant, he then goes out, and he finds another servant who owes him a much, much smaller debt. But instead, instead of being merciful to him, he, he has him thrown into jail because he can't pay it. And then some of his colleagues, the other servants, they find out what has gone on and they go back to the king and they report what they've seen. And we pick up the story in verse 32. 
says this, Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. What Jesus is saying here is, look, you have been forgiven this infinite debt that you could never, ever pay off. Not a financial debt, but a moral debt that you owe to God. And so whenever somebody else comes along and sins against you, you need to forgive them. Paul reiterates Jesus' point here. The main reason that we need to forgive our brothers and sisters in our church family is not because we're nice people and we feel like doing nice things, but it's because God in his infinite mercy has forgiven us. So no matter how big the offense is towards us by someone else, the sin that we've committed against God is always much, much greater. So we need to forgive. This is not an optional extra, but we do it because God has forgiven us. Thirdly, then, we need to walk in the way of love. To walk in the way of love because Jesus loves us. Have a look at verse 1 and verse 2 of chapter 5. He says, Walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. This is really the heart of what it means to be a Christian. God loves us out of his infinite love. And so we are to walk in the way of love in response to what God has done for us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this in his book, Life Together. He said, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. What Paul is talking about here is that this love that we have for one another, it's not just an idealistic dream. It's not a matter where we we sit around a campfire and sing kumbaya to one another and just talk about how nice we should all be. That is not Christian love. No, a truly loving church community happens when we love those around us because of the sacrificial love that Christ has for us. And we can see from Jesus' example that this love is costly. This love is costly. It required Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for us. He was despised and rejected and hung in, hu- in humiliation on a Roman cross. He sacrificed everything for us so that we could have a new life. And so this love is costly. Uh, David Livingston was a Scottish missionary and an explorer who spent over 30 years in the heart of Africa at a time when Africa really wasn't open to, to people from other places. And he said this, People talk of the sacrifice I've made in spending so much of my life in Africa. I never made a sacrifice. Of this we ought not to talk. When we remember the great sacrifice which he made, who left his father's throne on high to give himself for us. He was a man who really spent his whole life, the majority of it, in a place uh, which was very unsafe, dangerous, And it cost him a huge amount to spread the gospel. But he's not a super spiritual Christian who's better than all of us. No, he's just an ordinary Christian who has grasped what Paul is talking about here. That Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So he responded by doing really the only thing that is logical. 
the only logical response, by walking in the way of love. All that we see here in this passage today, it requires thought and energy and time and sacrifice to build one another up with our words, to take the time to really speak truthfully to one another, to share with those who are in need, to not fly off the handle whenever we become angry, but actually to compose ourselves and to love one another, to forgive when the much easier thing to do is just to hold on to that grudge and not give forgiveness. Is this often difficult? The honest answer is yes, it is. Do we need to do this, though, if we want to follow Jesus? Yes. But will God be with us every step of the way as we try and then fail and try again? The answer, wonderfully, is yes. Yes, he will be. If you're not a Christian here this morning, I hope that this picture that Paul has painted of this church community is an attractive one, is one that you find intriguing. And can I say that a lot of the behavior that we've talked about this morning, you can already see it in our church community. There are people here who, whenever there's somebody in need, will always be the first person to share whatever they have with them. There are people here who are actively, every single day, speaking words of encouragement, words of life, and speaking truth to one another in love. If you're here this morning and you want to be a part of that community, please do speak to one of us after about that. We would love to talk to you more about that. This is to be an attractive, welcoming, warm, and loving church. But if you're here as a Christian this morning, can I encourage you and plead with you, you, please keep on going. Please continue to walk in this way of love. We've been reminded here this morning by Paul that Jesus loved us and he gave himself up for us. And so the only natural response, the only one that makes sense, is for us to love those around us. It's to forgive those around us who've wronged us, because we've been forgiven ourselves. This is the way of love that God has called us to walk in. What an amazing outpouring of grace and mercy and love that he's given to us. And we're going to spend some time now just responding to the love that God has given Let's pray. Father, we 